Good day to you listeners and welcome back to Science Changing Life with your one and only host, Drew Duglin. And what a journey I have lined up for you today, or should I say trip? Always pushing the boundaries here, we delve into the breakthrough topic of psychedelic substances. I'm lucky to be joined by external guest Frederick Barrett, who is a cognitive neuroscientist based at the Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Barrett specifically covers the promise of these compounds in a clinical setting to help alleviate a number of neurological and mental health disorders. But before that, let's discover how it was Fred's initial passion for music that guided him towards studying learning, memory, and emotion. I grew up in Philadelphia, and for a good portion of my pre-college life, I was really devoted to playing music. I Hmm. played the trumpet, and I played the violin in a number of community orchestras, and I played the drums in punk rock turns hardcore punk band that persisted through college. I went to Temple University for undergrad for music education. At the time, I knew I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I loved music and I liked helping people. And I naively thought there would always be jobs for music teachers. And um, and at the time, I was taking my psychology core courses, just undergraduate requisites, right? And getting really into it. So I decided to stay an extra year get a double major in psychology and music ed and uh, I really began to get involved in research at that point I was involved in two different labs one lab uh, the lab of Dr. Lauren Alloy at Temple studying hopelessness depression and uh, another lab the lab of Dr. Bob Weisberg studying creativity then I was able to kind of use uh, contribute to studies looking at music creativity while I was also uh, contributing to studies learning about depression I just got completely addicted to the idea of you know conducting research you know who the at that point who the heck wants to treat people when you can do all this cool research and you know if anything hits you can have an outsized impact on the world and well anyway i I found a a grad school program at uc davis in the lab of peter janata at the center for mind and brain where i could bring everything full circle and use music as a tool to study emotion and memory in the brain at about the same time i was friends with another grad student at uc davis who was a couple years ahead of me and she was studying the effects of meditation on attentional functioning and cognition. And it was always her, as Catherine McLean, it was always her dream, or at least I understood it to be that, to study the effects of psychedelics. And she graduated, she came to Hopkins to work with uh, our our mentor, Roland Griffiths, who was studying the effects of psilocybin. And Catherine and, and Roland got some money to, to run a study looking at the effects of psilocybin on meditation and, and the convergence of experiences that you can encounter during meditation, experiences that you can encounter with psychedelics. And uh, some of the money was going to be put aside for brain imaging the day after the experience. There was a hope that they might be able to index and, and study the afterglow. So, you know, there, there's this change in you know, stress and emotions that, um, you know, reduction in stress and, and a change in emotions that can occur a day or days and up to a week after psychedelic experience that people like to colloquially call the afterglow. And wow, wouldn't it be interesting to, to study that? And, and we should use music as a tool to do that. I know a guy who does that. So Catherine sent me a series of emails, you know, how did you design your study? How did you collect your data? How did you analyze your data? How did you interpret your data? How did you find your subjects? And I jokingly, mostly jokingly sent her a tongue in cheek email response um hire me as a postdoc and i'll do it for you and she said okay and i said what (laughs) really okay great yes of course i would love to come to hopkins to study the effects of drugs on the brain 
you know, music is an incredible tool to do that. But, you know, we know all sorts of things about drugs, you know, how they work in the brain and what receptors they hit and how they're metabolized and all these things. You know, music is complicated because people are complicated. But drugs, drugs are the tool that I should be using to study, you know, altered states of consciousness, emotional functioning, memory and other things. And so I came to Hopkins as a postdoc and uh, and began to do that. Catherine soon after left academia and, and dropped this whole study in my lap. And, and then I was off to the races. But uh, I find myself in the peculiar situation now of contributing to studies that are showing remarkable effect sizes in, in relatively intractable populations that are suffering deeply in, with disorders that are highly prevalent. And the initial signal seems to be that we might actually go a long way in helping people. You know? right. and it's such a fascinating background. I mean, like you described in your earlier days, it's like you've had this thought a few times, you know, what am I doing? And then it turns out that you've been able to bring that emotional sensitivity from psychology and you combined it with, say, your expertise in coding to make a good, really unique researcher, I would say, because so much of behavioral neuroscience now seems to depend a lot on this uh, software too. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, has, has really done me well, you know, and it's, yeah, it's incredible. You know, I, I found myself at one point in grad school complaining to my advisor, uh, Peter, you know, like 95% of what I'm doing is, is sitting behind a keyboard and, and struggling with MATLAB. And he said, well, would you rather be pipetting? And I said, well, in fact, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they, yeah this, is, this is the tool of the time for sure. Definitely. And so it's fascinating. Your lab is at this intersection with psychedelics and music and then helping certain populations. And you had just mentioned psilocybin. And so what is psilocybin? Because I think people, is that the same as mushrooms? People might be familiar with that, but what is psilocybin? Yeah. So, so fungi generally and broadly are fascinating, incredible little chemical factories. And there are, you know, thousands and thousands of species of mushrooms uh, that each have their own chemical composition and the fruiting body of the mushroom, which is the thing we would pick up and eat from the, from the store if we were eating an edible mushroom, you know, a safe edible mushroom. But the, those fruiting bodies are just the kind of outward expression, kind of the, the fruiting expression of an underground mycelium, almost like a root network. And the fruiting bodies of various mushrooms produce, depending on their habitat, there, there are hundreds of species of mushroom that produce this peculiar chemical psilocybin. So yeah, psilocybin is the active, psychoactive compound in magic mushrooms. And apparently, uh, you know, magic mushrooms have apparently been used for an unknown period of time, but a not insignificant period of time in the past by a number of indigenous populations. Psilocybin-containing mushrooms are, are found on all continents maybe at least six of the continents. Certain cultures of the world have, have identified them as important and utilized them in kind of ceremonial offerings and ritual and, and for healing or for shamanistic purposes or other things like this. Psilocybin mushrooms, you could argue, came to Western consciousness through uh, Gordon Wasson, who uh, was a Wall Street banker ages ago, you know, uh, almost a century ago. And he and his wife took a trek into the middle of Oaxaca, Mexico, found a population of people who were using psilocybin mushrooms. And the story of early research with psychedelics is primarily with LSD. But of course, there were studies with psilocybin, which comes from psychoactive mushrooms, mescaline, which comes from psychoactive cacti, and, and then a whole host of related compounds that were developed or discovered it was it's mostly from what i understand lsd that was studied in labs across the country and around the world 
in the 50s and 60s. This all came to a crashing halt with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act in 1971. And there were a, a small number of studies here and there scattered out throughout the 90s. And then it wasn't really until the first modern trial with psilocybin in the States in 2006 that people really began to start paying attention to it again. Suffice it to say, we use a synthesized compound rather than fungal matter for a couple of reasons. One, if we have that synthesized compound uh, generated by a medicinal chemist, we can really clearly and cleanly characterize that compound and store it under appropriate conditions. And we know exactly what we're giving people at all points. As I was kind of alluding to, you know, the, the magic mushroom itself is the fruiting body of a, of a network of mycelium. There are hundreds of species of mushroom that contain psilocybin. Each species has its own average psilocybin concentration in any given fruiting body. But even within the same species, two fruiting body from the same mycelium network that are right next to each other, they can have vastly different concentrations of psilocybin or other compounds. And so, frankly, if you are given a, a handful of fungi, there's no way of knowing how much psilocybin is in your hand. Definitely a solid rationale there for using the sort of chemically isolated psilocybin. So what kind of clinical studies have you been doing then and with what sort of patient populations and what have the results been like? Our lab at Hopkins and, and in parallel, a lab led by Steve Ross at uh, NYU in 2016 published parallel studies, randomized controlled trials in cancer patients showing very large effect size, incredibly impressive signal for the potential of psilocybin to treat anxiety and depression in these, this population. And if you know anything about late stage cancer, the existential crisis that accompanies the cancer can be one of the most difficult things to treat about cancer aside from the actual cancer. It's a, a, a remarkable opportunity to potentially give people their life back for the end of their life. But before those two randomized control trials, my colleague Matt Johnson here at Hopkins in 2014, published an open-label pilot study showing a remarkable effect of psilocybin in helping people to quit smoking. It was an open-label, unrandomized, small-sample, proof-of-concept trial in 15 people. Uh, but the findings were that I think six months out, over 80% of people were still abstinent cigarettes, biologically verified, and slightly less than that at one year, which just is, is almost unbelievable. And in 2015, a uh, colleague, Michael Bogenschutz at NYU, published uh, an open-label pilot trial in patients with alcohol use disorder, showing that uh, psilocybin therapy paired with a motivational enhancement kind of psychotherapy intervention drastically reduced the number of days drinking and the heavy drinking days of patients. There's ongoing research that uh, hasn't been published yet by a colleague, Peter Hendricks, at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, studying the effects of psilocybin in treating patients with cocaine use disorder. And now at Hopkins, we have a study in patients with opioid use disorder coming online soon. In 2016, when we published our cancer trials, Robin Carhart-Harris at Imperial College London published an open-label clinical trial in patients with treatment-resistant depression, suggesting that, in fact, psilocybin might be helpful in drastically reducing depression severity in patients with treatment-resistant depression. These can be incredibly difficult patients to treat. Since then, we published a, a study in patients with major depressive disorder writ large that was published at the end of 2020. In our study, over 70% of patients showed a, a clinically significant effect, which is a 50% or greater reduction in depression severity from baseline. I mean, these are such... These are such striking effects and 
you know, from anxiety and depression all the way to addiction as well, which, you know, would be a massive application given the epidemic there with uh, different drugs. So you mentioned effects lasting up to a year, I think, in in smokers. So could you foresee some of these changes being permanent? Do you think people might have to sort of re-up a dose, you know, every year or what would the dosing look like there? And would there be any negative side effects of these uh, interventions too? Yeah, excellent questions. And and there's a lot to lot to unpack here. I mean, so one one thing to acknowledge is that despite all of the wonderful and fascinating things that I just said, you know, the number of people who have been treated with with psilocybin specifically or psychedelic in general in the modern era is is incredibly small compared to the number of people who need to be treated in order to support, you know, registration trials for the FDA. Whereas, you know, cardiac or obesity or hypertension, you know, all, all sorts of medications going through registration trials. You need like thousands of people from all sorts of places over the world uh, and thousands and thousands of observations to be able to, to claim that there's a therapeutic effect and, and that it's safe enough to bring to market. Even then in your phase four observation, and it's only then that you, you find certain drugs like one in 10,000 case of heart attack or aneurysm or something like that. And and drugs that show those serious adverse effects can be pulled off the market after being marketed and sold, right? Once we learn more. And so, yeah, we're way, way behind anything, you know, any kind of data like that to, to really suggest like super low rates of potentially serious adverse effects. That, that having been said, still the effect sizes and, and the findings are pretty remarkable, but there's so much that we don't know. And there may be differential effects in different disorders. So between indications, substance use versus mood disorders, there may be different dosing regimens. We just don't know. We have no idea how long these will last. It may be that we have to play it by ear that some folks with major depressive disorder, I don't want to use the C word, but you know, have, have really indefinitely enduring you know therapeutic effects whereas other folks with major depressive disorder they might need a re-up in a year maybe folks with treatment resistant might need far more frequent therapeutic intervention with psilocybin maybe it maybe after three or four different rounds then then you see lasting benefit but we we simply don't know these are all great questions and they're all questions that are going to have to be answered if psilocybin is ever approved as a medicine when working with different patient populations, Fred and the team are careful to screen for and exclude those who may have a family history of psychosis to minimize the risk of adverse events. That being said, is there a case to be made for challenging psychedelic experiences that help us to confront and integrate our shadows? You know, you can think of what people like to call bad trips or challenging experiences. These are experiences that can be characterized by feeling of physiological distress, grief, panic, fear, feeling like you're going insane or losing your mind, and, and lone, feelings of loneliness or isolation. These are all very challenging affective and physiological-like experiences that people can encounter during experiences with high doses of psychedelic drugs, especially the doses that we administer in clinical uh, environments and, and, and clinical situations. There's a sense in psychedelic using communities that the worst trips are the best trips because oftentimes most often I'd, I'd say at least within the clinic these challenging experiences arise because of challenging psychological material that a person encounters during their experiences and on the other end after the experience occurs and, per, and people integrate that within their lives it's almost always part of the story and confronting these aspects of the self or a personal history or a person's life and dealing with that and working through it 
and and maybe even more so the personal insights and the psychological insights that people gain through this process and our best guests right now seem to be one of the core drivers of therapeutic effects so it's almost like the bad trip in some cases is the medicine you know there have been uh, I, I believe one or two instances of an individual who's gone through this experience and had to seek counseling afterwards because they had to finally confront the thing that they hadn't been confronting and they went to like a few sessions and uh, you know with with a counselor or a therapist and and then and that was it they kind of integrated it they worked it out and they moved on sure that is interesting so could you foresee these being used at all for neurodegenerative conditions as well yeah so that's interesting so my colleague al garcia romu and and paul rosenberg here at hopkins are running a study right now in patients with I believe mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's dementia. And, and I believe they're targeting kind of cognitive and affective components. There's a, a growing animal literature to suggest a neurite genesis, spinogenesis, synaptogenesis that occurs acutely and then after psychedelic uh, exposure. If it's the case that psychedelics have a neuroplastic effect, you know, it would it would then follow that you'd want to know whether or not that uh, neuroplasticity that's induced by psychedelics could be helpful in treating neurodegenerative diseases, at the very least, to kind of slow the progression of the disease. This would be the remodeling then of neurons in the brain. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And other disorders could be reasonable targets, patients with Parkinsonian disorders. It may not be that psychedelics directly treat the disorder, but there's a literature suggesting that uh, that stress, anxiety, and depression early in in the progression of Parkinson's disorder can can speed the the uh, acquisition and the development of the disorder. And isn't that terrible? Because the first thing you feel after you're told you have a Parkinson's diagnosis, you freak out because some people see it as as like you know a, a point of no return like wow i'm going to have this for the rest of my life and, and, and i'm going to die with it so it's it's terrible that reacting strongly to that with anxiety and depression can can speed the, the development of the disorder but you know wouldn't it be interesting if psychedelic intervention early on in that process would kind of relieve people of the stress and anxiety of the diagnosis got it so i was at a neuroscience conference earlier in the year and there was a panel on psychedelics and it did seem that a lot of the work was looking at how it affected our serotonin pathways, which a lot of people associate with sort of that happy feeling. So do we know, you know, mechanistically, is that the predominant type of um, neuron that these drugs sort of affect and remodel? Yeah. So it does seem pretty clear from decades of work uh, in multiple species and multiple levels of analysis that it's the serotonin 2A receptor that uh, and signaling at that receptor that is the primary mediator of the trip, if you will, yeah. right? The psychedelic effect. And there's uh, a, a bunch of human literature to suggest that that subjective experience, the trip itself, is associated with therapeutic outcomes. So, you know, it, it follows then that signaling at this receptor, if it is indeed what kicks off all of these experiences that, that are associated with therapeutic effects, it, it follows that, that this signaling that this particular receptor is the apparent initial mechanism of all of these effects with, with some of the subjective effects possibly being you know, the mind's manifestation of increased neuroplasticity. Or there's a whole other thread to consider here as well, uh, which is work that's coming out of the lab of Chuck Nichols at Louisiana State University. Dr. Nichols is, is developing a really beautiful literature to suggest that 
psychedelics may have uh, an anti-inflammatory effect in multiple different species, in multiple different organs, in multiple different processes. And, and, and that just kind of breaks things wide open, right? Like everything's related to inflammation. So if you can treat inflammation, you can treat so many different disorders. And you know, who knows if that's actually true. I think we still have a long way to go to determine whether or not psychedelics have a neuroinflammatory or anti-inflammatory effect and, and how all of these things relate. But yeah, I think inflammation and neuroplasticity are the two hot models right now. Sure. Yeah, that was absolutely fascinating and such an exciting space. So I have a little roundup question for you, which would be if you could give a one piece of advice or your wisdom to anybody in the sort of realm of work or career progression or life, health, self-improvement, it could be in anything. What do you think it would be and why? A lot of people ask how to get involved with psychedelic science. And, uh, and my advice has been the same and it echoes advice that other folks have given, which is to not get involved in psychedelic science. There are lots of silos and, and lots of domains and disciplines within neuroscience, psychology, sociology, philosophy, microbiology, chemistry. There are lots of different disciplines that come together to really inform and, and help to define psychedelic science. And psychedelic science exists at different levels in all of these disciplines and domains. My advice to people who want to get involved in psychedelic science is to get educated about something that you can use to study psychedelics, get your bona fides in that field, and then bring it to psychedelic science. And so that's what we need. And that's what's going to help the field grow the most. Well, I do really like that perspective. Develop those tools that you could then transfer across to any field of your choosing. A big thanks to Fred for joining me today and perhaps giving us a glimpse of the future of treatment options for those struggling with mental health, addiction, or other cognitive disorders. And you can learn more by looking in the show notes where you'll find links to Fred's work as well as more exciting Scripps research content. Remember to pass on the gratitude by rating the podcast wherever you may be listening and please join us again for future episodes. In that intervening period, take care of your mental, stay curious, and be well.